We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. The question I ask my guests, the witnesses on this podcast, is what makes your life meaningful? Another way of putting it is what is trying to come into the world through you? These are great questions, but what if your mind goes completely blank? According to my witness today, Giles Paley Phillips, not only does it not matter, but a blank is a very creative place to start. And he should know, as he's one of the hosts of Blank, a podcast where he asks successful and famous people to share their experiences of going blank. He also has a book out called Blank, Why It's Fine to Falter and Fail and How to Pick Yourself Up Again. So Giles, why is it fine to fail? Well, I think as people, we should sort of embrace failure sometimes because often those moments of failure are a great moment for growth. You know, we go through a mistake or we have a difficult moment or a moment of failure. I mean, the feeling of failure is is obviously a very negative one. Always people see it as a negative thing to happen. And obviously it's very difficult and challenging if you're having a moment of, you know, failure in in voted corners. But I always see it as as an opportunity. There's an opportunity there to try something again if it's not gone quite the way you wanted it to, or to reevaluate what's going through your head or the way you're attempting to do something. And Give yourself the opportunity and the time to try that thing again, to dust yourself down. So, yeah, I think there's been very negative connotations around the idea of failure and that, you know, that that is the end of the journey for you to a certain extent. Whereas, you know, it isn't really. It's actually the moment to re-go at something. And I think we learn so much and grow so much from moments of failure or mistakes that we make along the way. I agree with you 100%. I think there's a great problem these days. We're so frightened of failing that Mm. actually we sort of don't leave our front door. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but at two ends of the spectrum, many years ago, I used to do a radio program and I interviewed Richard Branson on this program, who I think we can agree would be described as a success. But he said that what was really important was the fact that he failed lots of times, Mm. that actually he learned a huge amount from that. And at the other end of the scale, talking to clients sometimes, they're sometimes so frightened to upset their partners and therefore fail that Mm. they don't say anything. And Mm. that just builds up more and more problems and they end up coming to see me. So avoiding failure is sort of not a possible path if you're going to actually live a full life. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's, it's going to be part of our lives all, all the way along. I mean, from when we're little toddlers trying to learn to walk, you know, we will get ourselves up, we'll cling on to the side of the settee so that we can walk along and learn those first few steps and we will stumble and fall. And, you know, that carries on throughout our lives. We're always stumbling and falling. But the idea is that you pick yourself up again. You wouldn't give up, you know, as a small child thinking, actually, do you know what? I'm just not going to move anymore. I'm just going to sit here and hopefully everything will be done for me. It doesn't work like that, does it? So, you know, as we get older, we have to keep keep picking ourselves up and walking along. So it's a part and parcel of our journey through life. And, you know, certainly with work stuff, if you're, you know, attempting different projects or you're going through a career or whatever you're going to do, you are going to meet those moments where things won't go to plan and won't be quite as how you envision them. 
And, you know, it's being able to sort of recognize that, reflect on what's happened, and then maybe try and go again. Much like we are when we're toddlers trying to scream along the, the sofa. Do you think actually life ever goes to plan? We have plans, but the universe often thinks quite differently, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Nothing ever goes to plan, does it? I mean, you know, we wake up each morning with a sort of, I guess, an idea of how our days are going to pan out. I mean, I say this to my children all the time. One of my sons, my youngest, finds school quite a challenge. He's got quite a lot of learning difficulties, particularly dyslexia. So he finds school quite a challenge. And But I'm always trying to get him to embrace that this day is not going to be the same as yesterday. So if he had a bad day yesterday, it doesn't mean that today is going to be a bad day. There's a whole new host of opportunities and possibilities before him during that time. And actually today could be a much more freeing day, a, mu- a day that where he will maybe make some progress that he didn't make yesterday. And, and he can learn from the bad day and then, you know, put that into his good day. So yeah, I think nothing, like you say, nothing ever goes to plan. So I think we have to embrace that and lean into it sometimes and just learn, like you learn from the things that haven't gone quite to plan and see if we can do things slightly differently the next time. One of my favourite sayings is, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great saying. Yeah, brilliant. Now, on the subject of plans, I'm sure your parents didn't have these plans for you. You left school with just one GCSE to your name. What Mm. was that like? Did you feel a failure? Absolutely, I did. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I can look back now and think that childhood wasn't necessarily the best in my upbringing wasn't that had to create the best environment for being academic or learning. I, my, I lost my mum when I was six to leukemia. And then my dad had a lot of problems with alcohol and also gambling. So we didn't have a lot of money. You know, there wasn't a structure there particularly. And he was out a lot and kind of estranged from us to a certain extent. And my brother moved out when he was quite young, sort of around 15, 16. He moved in with my grandmother. So it was a weird kind of structure to our lives. And school, I guess for some, my wife had quite a difficult upbringing as well. But for her, school was a release for her. It was an escape. Whereas for me, it was just something that was kind of in the way, you know, and and I would act out more really. I was always probably seeking attention and and messing around and stuff. And school wasn't really a sanctuary for me, particularly. It was a difficult place to be and didn't have necessarily the support structure at home to deal with that. So yeah, I found learning difficult. I, I just was never really very academic. I was quite into sports and I kind of excelled at running and things like that. But Again, that wasn't necessarily encouraged anywhere. Certainly wasn't encouraged, particularly at home. Again, a family that was not really particularly in sports. And then at school, again, it wasn't really encouraged particularly there either. So that wasn't something I particularly went into either. And going back to your question, yeah, I did feel pretty miserable when I got my GCSE results. I think I thought I'd sort of scraped enough to go on because, you know, like it is very much at the same as is now when I did my GCSEs, it's quite the early mid nineties, you know, the structure of school and our education system kind of pushes you along a certain trajectory. So, you know, you go to school, you do secondary school, then you go to college because all your friends go to college and then you go to university and you kind of foresee that trajectory for yourself, you know. So I was hoping I would probably get enough GCSEs to take me to college and then I could still hang with my friends and have those experiences and then go on to university if, you know, if that so was my inclination at the time. So those plans, you know, going back to plans didn't quite work out for me. And yeah, I found it very um, hard to sort of pick myself up from that. And certainly it took me a long time to kind of get to grips with where I wanted to go with my life. Yeah, it's taken a long time to get there. So what, I mean, and this is the important question about when things go wrong, Mm. what do you think you learned from that experience? One thing I learned was that it's okay not to be academic. It's okay not, do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. 
it's okay <laughs> not to be into like writing and, and doing like maths. <laughs> you know, I was terrible at maths. It's okay not to have those things. It's okay to have other interests. When I went to college, I started doing, you know, as I say, went along this trajectory of how we work in this country with our education system, went to college and did GCSE retakes because I wanted to get onto some A-level courses. And it was there that I sort of met some like-minded people who, again, that probably we weren't particularly academic either, but we had this love of music. And I remember wanting to get a guitar and we started a band and then had this unbelievable passion and desire to play music and live music and write music and became ravenous for listening to music and became really seeped in the rock scene that was sort of blossoming in our college. And that was then, I kind of thought, well, there is different paths. You don't have to necessarily go down this academic path. You know, other kind of creative paths weren't necessarily kind of encouraged within the school environment, or at least I wasn't aware of them. But when I started to have my own kind of feelings about these things and my own desires and appreciated that there are different ways of doing things, then I started to sort of really blossom, I guess, as a person and yeah, making my own trajectory, moving away from what was kind of being enforced with me and thinking, well, actually, I can make my own journey. I can make my own path. I mean, I like that idea. Other paths are available because we can get so blind to that. Certainly reading back, I got from my father recently all my school reports. Okay, he yeah. kept to them. I had them from five to 18. And, you know, the message over and over again was that I was sort of interested in what I was interested in, but not necessarily what they were interested in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And must concentrate more, a bit of a chatterbox. I mean, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly the same. Yes, waffles quite a lot, which is uh, <laughs> not, not lost on me these days, to be honest. But they were trying to put us through a sausage machine. And actually, you know, I could fit in the sausage machine. I went to university, et cetera, et cetera. But they had one idea. And just because you don't fit into that one idea doesn't make you a failure. Now, you discovered your alternative path in a slightly different kind of way. And I don't, from reading your book, I'm not quite certain why you were buffering the floor. Was this at college or at school? Yeah, so I think I dropped out of college, discovered the pub and socialising and just was really lapsed at going to classes. Again, there was just not that desire and interest. And then I'd found this other thing, the music thing, and thought, well, actually, that appeals to me, that path. And maybe I could carve out some sort of career in that. Certainly, I've always had my head in the clouds a little bit. So I think that was certainly something that has started to take over my thoughts. You know, the idea of writing and composing music and being in a band and playing gigs and maybe making a career in that and, you know, releasing an album or something. There's something that really, really took over my sort of daily thoughts. So when I dropped out of college, it was just to try and find a job. Funny enough, I ended up working back doing early morning shifts at the college that I was at, which is, um, if you want to talk about failure, that kind of feels, you know, that could be the epitome of, of a moment of failure, having to sort of pass my friends as they come in to go to college classes and I'm just coming out from a morning shift cleaning the floors that they're about to go on. So yeah, that could be quite humbling. But at the same time, I didn't care to a certain extent because now I had this desire and this hope and this dream. No one was ever mean, but you have to have your own thoughts about those things. What do people think of me? You know, I'm, I used to go here and now I'm cleaning the floors. But in the back of my head, I knew that I had this other thing that I was really into and it didn't matter. But somehow the mindlessness of the buffering allowed mm. you to access a different part of your brain. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've done along the way of doing like 
certainly when I was in the band, I always did kind of odd jobs on the side, working in retail or cleaning jobs. And certainly that carried on as I was trying to sort of make it as a writer as well. And actually those kind of mundane jobs where you've got, and this is no disrespect to anyone who does those kind of jobs, but just having that, that freedom of thought, I guess, you know, like working in the shop, often there was like downtime where you were just sort of sitting on the till and you're left to your own devices and your own thoughts. And I think those moments of emptiness or blankness, you know, those blank kind of moments, you're able to actually start conjuring things in your head and ideas start to come to you. I think when we're really very busy and we're like our lives are taking over a little bit we tend to get a bit distracted and uh, you know and actually moments of boredom I you know I always say to my kids like it's good to be bored you know it's like it's not it, it is it's really good because like really amazing things happen I think in those moments of boredom so I think doing kind of mundane cleaning jobs and retail jobs and stuff where I didn't have to necessarily think too much about the actual work allowed my brain to kind of start to ferment ideas and projects songs or whatever it might be that I was working on at the time. And what did you learn from your mother's death at six years old? Because it's all very well for us to say that you can learn things from tough things like not doing particularly well at school, but can even those really terrible things like losing your mother so old, can they be learning experiences? Oh, very much so. I mean, yeah. Obviously, it's something that never kind of goes away, particularly when you've lost someone at such, you know, losing a parent at a very young age when you kind of don't really, haven't really got to know them properly. You know, I haven't got really that many memories of her. I was only six years old. So it's only sort of fragments of moments with her. And then the rest is kind of compiled thoughts and ideas from other people because you're trying to sort of scramble around finding out what that person was like and those moments you might have shared with them. And you're finding that through other people vicariously, you know, through relatives or friends. So you're sort of putting this picture together of this person. So it, those feelings never go away, I don't think. You know, I've always, I've talked about grief a lot in my work and in interviews and things. You know, it is a, a lifelong journey that you kind of have to go alongside. And I think the main thing it's taught me, and I talk about this quite a lot, is being grateful for things. I've, I feel very grateful, you know, that I have a life of, you know, I have my own family now. I have, I'm doing the things I want to do. And um, that makes me feel very grateful. And it's certainly something I try and convey on social media and stuff that, you know, I've got this gratitude and hope for the world. And I like to put out positivity and kindness because I think, I think when you've been through something that traumatic and, you know, there's been a whole bunch of stuff along the way, the fact that I'm still here and still doing the things I want to do, can't have anything else but gratitude for that. I've been able to have my own family and I live in a wonderful place in the world, in East Sussex, right by the coast. You know, I, I'm just so fortunate. So yes, I think those sort of difficult moments in your life, if you lose a loved one, particularly a parent when you're young, I think you do learn that life is short, but being grateful for the fact that you are still here. And I would suspect that you are a different father for this experience as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And again, like just making sure that I savor kind of every minute that we have of our kids for sure. And my wife lost her father at a young age as well. So we've got that thing in common together. And it's something that we know we've always been very open as well and honest with the children about grief and death and loss and about their grandparents that obviously aren't here anymore. That's always been really something that's been important to us to be candid with them about that and so that they know about those things. And, you know, so it's not like a shock to them if they ever sort of faced with those difficult moments themselves. But it sort of made you record the moments. What's your Twitter handle? Eli is tender. So E L I I S T E N D E R one zero. 
because one of the things you have on your profile, in fact, when I last looked, it was pinned to the top. You take a picture. I assume that when she was your girlfriend, and you take a picture every year, and now there are pictures with the children there as well. I mean, it's incredibly emotional. I'm getting sort of tearing up talking about it now. Oh, it thank you. A, a, it's a beautiful thing to do. Yeah, the, our passport photos. I think Michelle and I, when we got together, I think we were in Brighton. And we must have not been seeing each other for that long, but I think we went to the cinema or something, have a bite to eat. And we were in Brighton Station and there was the photo booth there. You don't see them so often now, the photo booths. We really have to sort of venture out to find them now. <laughs> Um, but they used to be everywhere. And yeah, I just said to her, oh, it'd be nice to sort of capture this moment, which we did. And then I think we just found ourselves back there at a similar time of year the next year. And uh, I said, oh, we should do that again. And and then it just sort of became this tradition. And obviously we've been together 20 odd years now. And yeah, we've got the kids have kind of joined in and you can see them growing as, you know, now they're 14 and 12. So that, you know, it's getting cramped in that um, photo booth now. And I'm always the one on the bottom. So I'm always, they're always piled on top of me. But it's lovely. It's a, it's a really nice tradition to do. And it's lovely to be able to sort of capture our growth and our aging as well, which is quite nice in a way, you know, it's nice to be able to see that, you know, it's almost got a narrative to it now. So it's, it's lovely. And I'm, I'm so glad that we've carried on doing it. So you talk to people about going blank. What are the sort of places that people go blank that is really difficult? Well, it's interesting with the podcast because when Jim and I started, so I did it with um, a comedian called Jim Daly and kind of the idea of starting the podcast was I was having a sort of downtime in writing. I was writing a novel and I was just finding it difficult to finish it. I guess writer's block. I know some people don't think that's a real thing, but I've always, you know, I think it really is. And sort of suffering with that a little bit. And Jim, I knew from, we're both big fans of Crystal Palace Football Club and Jim does a podcast about Crystal Palace. Anyway, I was talking to him about, you know, maybe doing a podcast project. And I'd sort of mentioned that, you know, I was having a bit of trouble trying to finish this book. And I like the idea of talking to some other creative people about whether they go through those moments and what they do to deal with it. And he said, well, actually, I'm desperate to do stand-up again. I think he's had a break from it. And he said, I've just got fear of getting back on stage. So I thought, well, this is really interesting. There's obviously something here. And the idea of blankness, I guess, or going blank, was kind of more from a creative point of view. But as we started to do the first few episodes, it was quickly established that blank or blankness would mean different things to different people. And as the podcast has evolved, we don't just talk to sort of creative people as such. I mean, we have comedians, actors, writers, but we've now have, you know, have politicians we've had on, we've had business people, lots of sports people, chefs, you know, so from all lots of different industries. And this idea of blankness really has evolved and, you know, it can mean so much to so many different people. So for some people, it might be imposter syndrome. It might be public failure, social anxiety, it could be grief. We've talked about that. Parenting, sleep deprivation. These are all kind of, you know, the symptoms of blankness for a lot of people. And obviously we discuss those things and then we sort of look to see how those people get through them or what advice they might have for other people that are having similar sort of experiences. And we tend to think that famous people like Dawn French, they've got it all sorted out, haven't they? So they can't possibly go blank or be failures or anything mm. else like that. Are famous people blank as well? Do they have their failures? Absolutely. And that's the wonderful thing about it is that what we find out really, we're talking to these incredibly, like, you know, sometimes very high profile people is that they're just like everybody else. They have the same anxieties and neurosis and 
blank moments as everybody else. They put themselves into high profile projects and productions and performances, or if it's a sports person, they're in a high pressure game or whatever it might be. And those same things that sort of drive the human condition, they'll the same things that we explore every day with ourselves, those same feelings, base level feelings that often we have, like butterflies or nervousness or fear about failure, everyone experiences those. And, and, and in some respects, actually, the higher profile you are, perhaps even more the pressure and the level of scrutiny that you're going to proceed. And, and again, those feelings even more. I mean, imposter syndrome comes up an awful lot. And you think, well, how can someone like Dawn French or Nick Offerman or David Harbour or Louis Fru, how is it possible they would have imposter syndrome? They're so successful. But of course they do because they're riding on such a high level that the stakes are high. And obviously those things are going to come out. So explain what imposter syndrome is. Well, imposter syndrome is, I guess, the best way of explaining it really is finding that you are, I guess, not good at what you think you are doing. I have suffered from it in the past. And I guess in moments like today, us doing this interview, probably after we'll come off air, I'll be having a post-match analysis within my head thinking, God, I did waffle on a lot. And oh, I must have lost my train of thought in there. I'm terrible at doing this. I should probably didn't do these kind of interviews because I'm not very good at them. And that's kind of imposter syndrome, really. It's, I guess it's going into an area in doing something that you do on a regular basis, you know. So I guess it's like a footballer going out on the pitch and thinking that they can't kick the ball anymore. So how do we deal with that? I mean, I think the way you put it, post-match analysis of everything, Mm. because lots and lots of people go through, oh, I said this and I should have said that, as if they've got a whole set of football pundits who are all going through the whole match one thing after another. How do we sack the panel? It's very difficult. I guess you've got to check in on yourself and and realise where you're at. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to quieten down those voices in our heads. I haven't worked it out yet, to be honest. Other than thinking sometimes, I think you have to sometimes think how other people aren't necessarily thinking what you're thinking. I think we're often very hard on ourselves, aren't we? I think, you know, there's a thing that we are often our own worst trolls to a certain extent because we can be very hard on ourselves and because we have a certain level of expectation. And if we don't reach it, then then we can be very difficult for us to sort of accept. But I think it's, yeah, checking in on ourselves help a little bit and actually Maybe just giving ourselves a moment sometimes to just think, well, actually, do you know what? It went okay. It doesn't matter if that wasn't quite as perfect as you wanted it to be. I don't think there's any such thing as perfection. And, you know, let's move on to the next thing. So, yeah, I, it's, a, it's a tricky one, though. I mean, I, I'm saying all these things to myself as I'm saying them to you. I mean, I think visualising it and actually having an image that, and I love your image of the, that team of experts who are going back over yeah. the match and saying, you know, oh, what a load of old rubbish. If you can actually have that image, you can do what I said, which is sack the panel. Yeah. And you can maybe almost even imagine sort of having kinder people in there. So imagine a group of kind people, what they might actually say. I mean, you have some famous people on there. I mean, I don't think Dawn French, for example, is a name we're throwing around. I don't think she's going to be (laughs) saying very many nasty things to you. She's probably going to be quite understanding and might help you laugh at it. So having an image is actually really useful because then you can begin to do creative things with that image. We've already decided we're going to sack the panel and we're going to put in nicer people, you know, and we can sit here and think, who would we have as the nice people on our panel? I think we're back to your creativity. That creative approach to it could work. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I hadn't really thought about it like that, but it sounds like a great idea. I'm now thinking who I'm going to have on my panel of experts. <laughs> who, who are you having on your panel of experts? I've given you one. Have a couple, well, couple well, more. Well, to be honest, I'd probably just have my um, 
my wife would be on there. Yep. Sure, I've, I've started working with a life coach recently. I'd definitely have her on there. So yeah, I think I'd get some buddies on there, basically. Funny enough, actually, my life coach, I talked to her about imposter syndrome and she said, think about two people that your opinions you really trust. She gave me two scenarios and she said, get them to tell you what they think of that scenario with you in mind. And what was quite nice was I asked the two people. Mm-hmm. One of them was my wife and one was my best mate, Dave, who I've known since primary school. And they both answered what I'd said they would say, which was really reassuring because then you sort of think, well, okay, so I do know my own mind. I do have within me the feelings of confidence and assurance about certain things. And I think that's a, an interesting little idea to practice with ourselves is to, you know, think of two people's opinions you trust and then ask them how they feel about what you're doing. And actually, I think you probably find that you're probably actually doing okay. (laughs) You know, you're doing okay. So what did your wife say? I'm trying to remember the question. I think it was something like, are you happy with where you are, what you're doing? And I said, she'd say, yeah, you know, you're very happy because you're able to do the work that you want to do on a regular basis and earn an income from it. And uh, yeah, I said to Michelle the same scenario and she said exactly the same thing. So that was nice. You know, obviously, I guess in the back of my head, I knew she'd say that. So a time when we often feel failures and we're going to go blank is social anxiety. Now, what have you learned from your guests that would be useful to pass on about social anxiety? Well, it first really came up when we had the actor Reese Shearsmith on, who's very successful, was in The League of Gentlemen and Inside Number Nine, which was on TV at the moment, actually. Very successful writer and comedian and actor. And it was the first time it really came up and it was quite near the end of the interview. I think we started talking about specific blank moments and he said like his worst thing is going to places where he doesn't know many people. So he said like, you know, going to sort of BBC launch parties and things like that for shows, he found incredibly difficult. He said there would be moments where he would literally go to the door, he'd look around the room and then he'd just go home again, you know, because he just felt such pangs of anxiety around it. And it was interesting because then I started to kind of think, well, you know, actually, yeah, I mean, I guess... A lot of us feel difficult in like crowded spaces. And, you know, I think parties where you don't know many people, they can be anxiety inducing. And I suppose often what happens in the podcast is people talk about something and you start to look at your own kind of scenarios and experiences. <laughs> and, oh, actually, that, that happens to me quite a lot as well. You know, it was interesting writing the book because Jim and I, we were writing the book and thinking, oh God, nearly every chapter that obviously the book, um, we discuss all the different themes that come up on the podcast. And actually we were finding that we've experienced most of these things in some form or another. And you think, well, goodness, what, you know, I must be a, like a crumbling wreck of a person, but um, it's quite interesting. But regardless or, of the social anxiety, bring in the kind yes approach. that's the kind yeah exactly well, i'm trolling myself a human being exactly exactly a human being and it is that it's just that's the thing all these things are very human traits and and we do we do experience these things at some point or another you know i'm sure everybody's had some moment of social anxiety whether it's you know going to a, a party or you know just meeting new people you know we've all had those moments and i think that's one of the things i would say like you know that is perfectly normal and actually not to be unkind to yourself, like you just said, in thinking that it's not normal, you know, and we all have those moments. And I think it's okay sometimes to turn around and walk away if you're feeling particularly uncomfortable. And if you feel strong enough to, to force your way into those situations, then you know, obviously you can do that as well. 
Or, I mean, I would say have a plan in advance and be honest. So, Mm. you know, you say to somebody, I'm going to come to the party, but actually I'm socially anxious. Can you help me out? I mean, my cousin is the most wonderful person at giving parties because she will not only introduce you to people, but she will give you a suggested first topic. So she'd say, oh, Andrew, I'd like you to meet X. She's in my book group. Andrew's a writer. And then she'll go and leave you. And then you immediately say, oh, what are you reading at the moment in your book group? And, you know, away you go. Or she says, what are you writing at the moment? So you're not just having to sort of Andrew meets Susan. You've actually got a topic as well. And if you tell people, you tell hosts, that you are actually going to find it difficult, they will, at least a good host, will keep an eye open for you and do those sort of kind of introductions, the ones that give you a a raft, basically. Yeah, yeah, and that's all we want, really, isn't it? A way in to connect with one another. We just need a way in sometimes, and I think that's really true. And I think also, yeah, like you say, being honest about that thing. I mean, I think most things in life, if we communicate how we're feeling or what's on our minds at that time, it can help so much. You know, relationships, situations, whatever it might be. I think if we communicate that in in a positive way, then I think, you know, people do understand and are empathetic towards it. So how do you avoid blank moments? Well, like we talked about earlier, I don't think you can avoid them. I think they're just part of life. I think you have to accept blank moments. And funny enough, in the last few weeks, I've been having a total creative blank. I've been trying to write a few book proposals and I just can't get the words out, can't get the ideas formed in my mind. And so I'm taking a break from it. You know, I think sometimes for me, actually a break from some creative pursuits is is a good thing and have a rest from it and then come back to it with fresh eyes. So I think you just have to accept that they are part and parcel of life and that they won't stay forever. There is always possibility for new ideas to come or new thoughts to come, whatever it might be, whatever you're doing in life, career-wise, or even just in life in general. And, uh, you know, it's not a bad thing because often actually when you come out of those blank moments, it's often something quite positive will have come out of it. Except that actually a blank sheet is actually full of possibilities. If we have a blank piece of paper in front of us, there's endless possibilities that we what we can do to that blank piece of paper. We can fold it up into some sort of origami pattern or, or shape or animal. We can write a brilliant sonnet. We could write a song. We could write an essay. There's all sorts of things. Anyway, I'm just sort of babbling now. But in essence, that blank sheet is a host of possibilities waiting for us to just explore. I find often people who've come out of relationships and they've got a blank sheet about what happens next there is a great tendency to try and fill that blank sheet as quickly as possible. And that generally is not a good idea because you sort of end up either expecting this person to rescue you from the blankness or it's not such a blank page because you've brought a whole load of issues with you as well. And those are generally better sorted out before you start scribbling on the blank sheet of paper. So I think it's really important what you say, that it's okay to be blank for a while. Mm. It's okay not to have a plan to see what transpires, maybe to do a bit of buffering the floor sort of kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think, like I say, have, have a rest from it, have a, have a break from it. Leave the sheet blank for a while and then come back to it when you're ready you know, when you feel energized for it. And I guess it's don't agonize and put all your energies into trying to fill that blank space or that blank page, because yeah, like you say, it often won't be good what you're filling it with. So what's the best advice you've had 
from inquiring into blankness. Wow, there's been so much advice. It's hard to sort of pinpoint it into one capsule. I mean, for Jim and I, we say it's almost like our therapy session every week because we have these great conversations with often heroes of ours, you know, people that are really inspiring and people that we admire greatly. And like I say, that idea that we all have these moments, we all deal with them in different ways and that, and you can take something from all the different ways that we deal with it. But going back to your question and someone that I greatly admire who we've talked about already was Dawn French when she came on, such a lovely guest as well. I've always really liked her idea of leaning into things. When she's in a difficult moment or having a difficult period, she kind of says that she kind of leans into it and tries to use that to a certain extent. Now, I'm not saying that you need to bury your head into something difficult, but just to take away sometimes from those moments, either a bit of knowledge or that bit of experience that you can learn from and then use that going forward. I think that's a really important thing. And I liked her idea that how we respond to something is a decision. We sort of imagine that because A has happened, then we've got to react in B kind of way. And uh, you tell a story that she tells that when she was a student, she had the opportunity to go to America. And they asked her, where would she like to go? And she was an outdoorsy kind of girl and wanted to go to, I think it was Oklahoma. And what happened? Well, probably just to have a little bit of fun, but also she decided, well, I can completely reinvent myself. I don't have to be Dawn French from Cornwall, wherever she was living at the time. I can be this sort of more vivacious kind of person. And, you know, I guess probably putting some of her acting skills into place at an early age. Yeah, she completely reinvented herself and came up with a sort of new persona. And and she could do that because no one knew who she was, which is a wonderful thing to try. And I guess it did make me think, actually, do we all do that to a certain extent, you know, a little bit when, you know, look, we talked about gatherings and parties and things. We do sometimes put on certain personas or, or maybe inflate certain things about our lives, not in a horrible way, but or to make ourselves feel bigger or better, but just as a way in, a way in with people. It did make me think that that's something maybe we all do a little to a certain extent. So what's the most frequently given piece of advice? Wow. I think a lot of people will say things will be okay. And I know it's become a bit of a cliche term now, you know, things will be okay. But it's something that comes up a lot. And I think obviously you learn from doing these conversations that people have gone through difficult moments and they have got through them. And although when you're in the midst of something difficult or challenging time, you feel like this is never going to end. Generally, they do. And you are able to, like I say, grow and develop as a human being and learn from those moments. So I think that idea that you know, once you get through it, then you know you change for the better. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of becoming a member of our supporters circle is you can have the chance to write into us. And I'm going to have a letter from somebody who did just that. By the way, we now have on the website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, a feedback form. So you can, you can be your own post match analysis of the, uh, <laughs> um, hopefully kind, but. All feedback is good. Negative ones are useful as well because they are learning opportunities. Ideas, things you'd like to have covered in the podcast, have a look and send us some comments. So somebody who's written in is this man. I made a complete fool of myself at an office picnic. 
the combination of warm weather and alcohol was a disaster. I wasn't the only one who got loud and leery, but one of my female colleagues accused me of harassing her. This was a complete shock, and I 100% dispute her version of events. However, I have to go through a full disciplinary procedure, which the worst outcome is dismissal, but I hope it won't come to that. Unfortunately, rather than telling my wife straight away, I bottled it, tried to deal with the pressure on my own, hoping the complaint would come to nothing and everything would be smoothed over, but it all got too much. My wife now thinks I have something to hide, which I suppose I do, but not what she thinks. According to her, I fancy the woman. I want to have an affair. Perhaps I've already had one. All the times when she's been upset about my drinking at parties has been dragged up. The slightest thing can set her off, and I've still got the worry about work. Nothing I say in my defence helps. In fact, it makes matters worse. I put my hands up and apologise, and that's not enough either. So, I think this is a, a good example of when things don't go to plan. Mm. Any thoughts, Giles? Well, there's an awful lot going on in this letter. I think something we've talked about just a minute ago or alluded to is the idea of communication and how much communication can change a situation. And it does make me think sometimes actually with relationships as well, that there is often the reason people do sort of fall off a cliff with regards to relationships, like or they might seek solace in someone else is because they haven't communicated how they're feeling with their partner. And I think this is a prime example here where this man could have a, that conversation as hard as that conversation might be and how much it could be painful and hurtful to his wife. And, you know, obviously it would be a challenging thing for him to do. I think having that conversation and telling her exactly how he feels at this time, I think it's going to, in the long run, cause less pain and certainly deal with the situation at hand. Because the temptation is to try and sort it out straight away there and then and say, oh, you know, everything in our relationship is fine. You know, I love you. But actually, your wife is not going to believe that, partly no. because of what has happened, but partly because actually no relationship is 100% no. happy. There are things that you are unhappy about. Now, they might be things about yourself. They might be things about your partner. But if you keep them to yourself, then people are going to feel that you have something to hide. Yeah. And I think if you're doubling down on those as well, you know, his wife is obviously concerned and is suspicious of his behavior as well. So, and if you keep doubling down on those things, then, you know, when it eventually, and, and I guess it will eventually come to a head at some point, it will be virtually unavoidable because these things will just roll and roll then how much worse is it going to be then and more destructive it's going to be then? So I think to actually say now how you're feeling and have that open discussion, I understand that's hard though. It is difficult to have those brutal conversations, but I just think it will just save so much heartache in the long run. And I think that he needs to have an honest conversation with himself as well. Mm. How does he feel about his drinking? Because yeah. what I'm getting is a little bit of deflection. You know, I wasn't the only one who got loud and leery mm. sort of kind of thing. So I'm sort of minimising it a little bit. Yes. I mean, if obviously he's drinking a lot, and I think you're right. I think obviously if he's drinking heavily and or having moments of drinking heavily, then I guess that's going to um, cloud his decision making as well. And the other thing I would invite him to do is to listen rather than try and rescue his wife. Now, by this, I mean, because we want to make everything right, we sort of come charging in. We don't actually listen and really hear what is being said, what her fears are. Sometimes summarising back 
can really help. So, you know, you are concerned that this isn't the only time I've been drinking. You're concerned that I have a tendency to hit on women. Now, it's very easy to go in and then start defending yourself, but just summarize what your wife is saying so she really feels heard. And then when she feels heard, you can have your say as well. But that's the only way you can have a foundation for a really good conversation. Yeah. And, and all the things we're saying, Andrew, they're very basic things, aren't they? Reflecting, listening, talking. You know, they are three very base things that we can all do in life. And actually, in the long run, will make a situation far better. So I think you're right. I think listening is vital in this situation. And maybe even listening to the other woman who complained about his behaviour, because I 100% dispute her version of events. I'm sure that mm. there might be a few little nuggets. That's a, a nugget is even smaller than a nugget, I've decided, <laughs> of truth yeah. from where she's standing. So maybe it is important to hear those things and reflect on them. You know, do you want to be that kind of man? Well, yeah. And I think, yes, you do. You need, I mean, obviously, if alcohol was at play again, then he probably wasn't in his right frame of mind. And this lady has got to be, obviously, she's going to be heard out for a disciplinary procedure. And yes, if you're actually getting to that point, then clearly, like you said before, he needs to be talking to himself and listening to himself and reflecting on his behavior because clearly he's in the wrong there. And I would get some advice from somebody that you trust who can help you through this procedure as well so that you're going to be prepared for it. So you're not alone, that you've got some kind of support of some description. I mean, it could be that within the procedure there is somebody. If there isn't, you know, it might be worth speaking to somebody beforehand who has got some knowledge in this field, um, employment law or something like that, so that you can really think through how you're going to respond to that. I do hope that's been helpful for you. So we've been talking about getting things wrong. I think we should finish off with a bit of confession time. What have you got? What have you got wrong? What have I got wrong? Oh, goodness. What have I got right? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I like to think that I'm pretty thoughtful when I do anything that I do. But yes, I mean, I guess there are always going to be situations where you feel like you've probably not handled it in the best way. I'm sure there have been moments on things like social media, for example, where I've probably not acted in the right way or joined a pile in or something like that. So I think those moments are always worth reflecting on. Sorry, Andrew, you're going to say something. I was going to say, give me a concrete example. Let's have none of that waffle. Let's have a concrete example. With regards to social media, I mean, I've changed how, I mean, I think when I first started, I was very much like everybody else trying to connect with other people. And then I think along the way, I was probably drawn into pile-ins and certainly political discourse. I mean, in the last few years, I've really changed how I approach social media and I've tried desperately to try and make it a more, from my point of view, a more positive and kind a community I've tried to build up on my own social media. But there have been moments, I think when we started the podcast, actually, we were talking to John Ronson, who has written a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is all about sort of social media pylons and being publicly shamed in a digital age. And I think that week, the presenter, Kirsty Allsop, had smashed her child's iPad, I think, because they were playing on it too much. So she'd smashed it in front of them. And I remember, like many people at the time, were, were jumping on and, and criticizing Kirsty and, and being mean to her. 
I think I did ended up deleting the tweet that I put out there. And it wasn't as bad as some other people's, but it certainly it was part of a, a malaise of people jumping in and being mean for the sake of being mean, not being constructive with their criticism. You know, and I remember talking to John about it and actually, obviously, after that podcast as well, we're really reflecting on that moment and thinking, well, actually, that wasn't the best way to handle it. And, and since then, I've tried to be a lot more compassionate about people I disagree with and try to have more constructive conversations about things I disagree with. So, Giles, thank you very much for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. I can't let you go before I ask you what makes your life meaningful. Wow. So many things. Clearly, my, like my family are obviously a huge joy to me, having come from, you know, losing parents and having, you know, a very disjointed family life to having, you know, my wife and my two kids. And, you know, we talked about it earlier, being able to do those passport photos every year. That brings me great joy. And and then work as well. I find work really meaningful. Digging into a project, you know, when it's something new and exciting, I love that's a really wonderful thing for me and, and gives me great joy and feels like it gives myself purpose and I guess purpose and having meaning, I guess, intertwined to a certain extent. So yeah, I think diving into a new project and um, spending time with my family, they would they probably give me most meaning in life. Excellent. Well, the conversation doesn't stop here if you are a member of our supporters circle, because we're going to be having a bit of post-match analysis, but we're going to invite only nice people to it. Charles is going to tell me what he's learned from this experience, and I'm going to tell him what I've learned from this experience. And he's also going to share three things he knows deep down to be true. So if you'd like to find out more about joining the supporters circle, you can go to slash podcasts and you'll also find our new feedback form there as well so for the time being giles thank you very much thank you you've been listening to the meaningful life with andrew g marshall you can follow andrew on twitter like him on facebook and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts making editing and distributing the meaningful life comes with substantial costs and we'd like to ask for your help Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.